welcome along to the Pineapple Podcast. I'm Anna Biles, a broadcaster of nearly 20 years and now Rural Affairs Specialist at Core Communications. In this podcast, I'll be meeting the people behind the Pineapple Estate in Dorset and finding out more about their journey through diversification. It is not an action. Because the market continually changes and consumer needs change and public opinion changes, if you're going to, going to stay successful, you need to be providing what they want at that moment in time. Diversification is, is a management philosophy. In this episode I'll be meeting director of the Pineapple Estate Andrew Dyke to find out about the history. The family's been here since uh, 1920 when uh, my great-grandparents purchased the farm and uh, my great-grandmother did bed and breakfast in the house which looking back a hundred years ago Dorset must have seemed a very long way from anywhere and my great-grandparents farmed it uh, for the next, I guess the next sort of 30 years. And then when my grandfather died, died young, because in the 1950s it was inconceivable that a woman could be given the farm tenancy. So she and her son swapped farms. He went to farm at Lake at, at, at Thornford and my, great, and my grandmother came back here. My parents at the time, my father was the village copper at uh, Marriott um, and it sounds a bit like heartbeat because they used to um, raise day old chicks in the police station and he delivered them out off duty in the police car. <laughs> I can just see it happening today. Um, anyway, the, the, the story goes that um, they were turning the eggs, the phone went, my mother answered the phone, she had a conversation with her mother which uh, when she relayed it to my father, he asked what, 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 what uh, my grandmother wanted. Uh, my mum said, oh, mum wondered if we'd go back and uh, run pineapple for her. My dad said, well, what did you say? Yeah, bear in mind he was a serving police officer at the time. She said, oh, I said, oh, of course we will. So that ended my father's police career and his police pension, which he used to <laughs> regularly remind her of. Um, so that was in the 19, 1950s. They came back. And my, my, my sister at that point was, was a young girl. And they farmed on behalf of my grandmother for a time until my great-grandfather died in about 1964-65, at which point they inherited the farm and my mum and dad then bought the farm from my grandmother and my great-aunt. And they farmed until the late 90s, at which point, um, because I was... I was quite young, they were, they were in their 60s, I was only in my mid-20s, but um, Yvonne and I then took the farm tenancy, so that was eight, 1989, and we milked the cows for the next, uh, next 10 years or so, increased the herd. My father was very, very keen on um, pedigree cattle and had built up a tremendous herd. Um, we were in the top 6% in the country for genetics, we had animals in the top 1% when we sold. And although it was a hard decision, um, it was the right decision. And we know that the, the genetics that he built up are still prevalent in some of the top herds today, which, you know, it's nice to see that legacy go forward. But having, I did a Nuffield scholarship in how, uh, really, basically how the World Trade Organization would affect dairying across Europe and particularly the UK. We were very spread out. We farmed from across a 12 mile block which nowadays would seem quite almost ring fenced but in those days you know back in 
2000 or the late 90s, it was quite difficult and expensive. Milk price was falling and we decided that we would come out and uh, build a business park. And that's what we did. When you were growing up here, your father, as you said, was a policeman. Did, did you know as a child that you would want to take the farm on from them? Or did you have your mind open to other potential careers? Oh, no, like all, you know boys I wanted to want to drive the big machinery um, I always thought I'd farm I mean like a lot of my cousins it was what we were going to do yeah you, know, you look back on it and think well would I have done anything else and yeah I suppose we would have done but you know I even doing what I do today I still consider myself a farmer even though I haven't sat on a tractor for probably 15 years I couldn't start the modern ones we've got today but perhaps I'm more a land manager I wouldn't pretend that my practical farming knowledge is there now, but I still love the farm, I love the land. I'm passionate about what is happening in the countryside today and the government agenda or lack of government agenda and, and the longevity. I think that's what really appeals to me is this, how do you, how do you manage a business that's a succession business from one generation to another. You know, I feel like I spent most of my career working out how to, you know, successfully take it on and then the rest of my, the end of my career on how to hand it on. <laughs> but that's, um, <laughs> perhaps that's what a family business should be about. So when you got to the late 90s and you made that really difficult decision to sell the herd, what was your plan at that moment? Did you know you were going to convert the buildings and make a business park or... Was it kind of a wait and see what happens next? How, how rigid was that, that plan? The, the plan was quite fluid. We were determined that we were going to set up something where we were price setters, and not price takers. All our businesses, before, the, before we took on the farm, we were farm contractors and we'd always been price takers. And we looked at various options. At that point, the primary asset was the house. We even had it costed to pull all the buildings down and, and turn the house into a, you know, with a sort of a, a very grand entrance and, you know, in its, uh, and whether that was where the, 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 the best capital uplift would be. Plainly, we decided not to do that. The, at the time, farm building conversions either tended to be timber frames that were turned into nice houses or... You took a, a traditional, yeah, a, a modern portal frame building, stuck some roller shutter doors on it and let it out as it was. Didn't see the market in that. Commercial agents at that time uh, were seeing quite a, their view was rural property was at a discount. My argument was that it should be at a premium because you can go to any one of a, 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 of a homogenized urban business park and you could be anywhere in the country. Actually, what we needed to do was to maximise the environment in which we were and to set the buildings within that environment so that they were complementary to it rather than conflicting with it. And hence why we timber clad everything, why we have the grey you know, roofs as they age, they blend in. Um, we, we, we took inspiration to try to make them look as if they could have been more sort of stables and, and that sort of idea, and hence why it's all, all timber doors and with, with the windows next to them, so that you, know, you had that sort of what could have been small cart sheds, etc. Mm. I mean, it, it seems now, looking back at it 20-odd years later, 
you know, fairly obvious and, you know, you see this sort of style going around a lot of places, but in those days it wasn't. And it was quite difficult to persuade people to want to come out into the countryside. So we had to be very clear that it was not, it was not a cheap option, but it was, it was an option where it suited your business. So, I, you know, we've got tenants here who um, produce uh, specialist cosmetics and it suits them, I believe, that the overall effect that we've created within the, within the farm and the, the business part complements their brand. We're very clear on that, very passionate that, that, that it's not a business park dropped into a, into a rural landscape, that the, that the soft landscaping makes it disappear, makes it seem like it's part of it. And that you know, you'll notice there's no hard landscaping, nowhere have we got curbstones. You know, the, 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 the security fencing is thorn hedging. It, it should look natural, but it was a very deliberate act to do it. How many units have you got here now compared to when you started 20 years ago? Because presumably, did you do it sort of one building at a time? We did blocks at a time. So we did the, 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 the topper top part in this building here, which originally been up for our calves. And then we moved on and did the lowest part. And then the final stage was the buildings up against the road. And then we, then we built, expanded and built new buildings. We've got about 20 units, but we only have about 11 tenants because they've, they've taken so many, you know, one tenant's got seven units and etc. But we're very fortunate and we have, a, we have an unusual tenancy arrangement on our leases, but it does mean that we attract a lot of start-up or near-start-up businesses. And we've been very fortunate that, I mean, our longest-serving tenant has been with us almost as long as we've been open. We've recently had a tenant uh, outgrew us. They moved on. We, they've spared up two units, but they've they've gone immediately. We know we 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 didn't go public. It went it went word of mouth, and we're very fortunate like that. I mean, it's unusual for a tenant to be here less than I was going to say eight years, wow. and many approach are now twenty years. Do you feel like that was quite a brave decision, given you are in a really quite rural bit of Dorset, which we know is a lovely place to, to mm. live? But in terms of knowing that there was that demand for commercial units, did it feel like a, a gamble at the time? Well, what, what the original idea was, it was when people were starting to move down that, but were still at working age. And the, the surveyor we worked with, uh, we were adamant we didn't want uh, somebody that possibly had done it before and then that we wanted someone that came from outside the industry we could tell her what farmers wanted and well, like, what the, you know but we wanted someone with that bigger vision and we saw this opportunity of people wanting to work close to home but not from home and why we developed quite a lot of small units at the time it was at the beginning of when ISDN lines were coming in so we were able to yeah we didn't have the old DAC system where it's split lines. So people were, it seems incredible where we've moved with technology in 20 years, but that was quite a thing at the time, the fact that they could get a dial-up. And then over the years, through continual badgering of everybody, we managed to get fibre to the premises or fibre to the property here. It doesn't actually, it's not actually internal fibre, but it's fibre right to our gateway, which meant that we were able to provide a higher, much higher broadband than most people could do. But we've weathered 
some quite disruptive times. I, did, I didn't appreciate when Steve Jobs stood up and showed the smartphone just how it would disrupt the small office market. And it completely, it completely did that. Free Wi-Fi in Costa. You know, why are you, why are you renting a building if you can go in there and work for the price of a coffee all day? Mm. So the market's moved on again and we've moved with the market. Covid obviously was a, a big influence. Um, it's made it's made working from home now become fashionable. Whether at last time will tell, but it's certainly at the moment. Um, whereas at a time the big units, the big the bigger workshops would have been seen at a as a discount. Now they're at a premium. Um, office space we're converting into small artisan workshops where we can. Um, it, it's it's being it's being receptive and responsive to what the market is, rather than going no that's my that's what I've got and I will go and try and find someone to fill it. You know if, if that isn't what your customer wants, it isn't what your customer wants. You know you're not going to beat that square hole peg into a round hole. You need to you need to change your square hole into a round hole. I was going to ask is is diversification something you look back and you think we diversified 20 years ago. Or is it an ongoing process? A diversification is, 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 a, is a management philosophy. Um, it is not an action. Um, and I think that's a mistake a lot of people make. They see a single act of change as diversification, which indeed it is in that moment of time. But as, you know, as we've just said, the, the, because the market continually changes and, 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 and consumer needs change and the public opinion changes, um, you need to be mindful of that. And if you're going to, going to stay successful, if you're going to stay you know, attracting guests or, or, um, or tenants or whatever part of the business it is, you need to be providing what they want at that moment in time. And it can be difficult it can, you know, to, 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 to do that, but that's, what, that's what's needed. We, you, can see it, you can see it in the high street where people have got their business model. Hugely successful 10 years ago, 20 years ago particularly, now dead in the water. If you'd like to find out more about the Pineapple Estate here in Dorset, visit pineappleestate.co.uk. In our next episode, we'll be hearing more from Andrew about how and when he started to diversify the business. Thank you.